from a one-person endeavor. That's for sure. That I can tell you. Um, today is February the 26th, 2022, and it is Unity Day in Overeaters Anonymous. And the purpose and spirit of Unity Day is to take a moment, which we're going to do here in just a second, and we're going to, if you would, if I could ask you to please silently take a moment and say a prayer, not only for the people who are suffering outside the rooms, but for the multitudes of people who are already in the rooms and dying of their untreated addiction. So, uh, and, and while you're doing that, I will repeat the re responsibility, the responsibility pledge. I am responsible when anyone anywhere reaches out for help. I want the hand of AA to always to be there. And for that, I am responsible. Take a second and just reflect on the people that are dying of this vicious, debilitating disease. Thank you. Um, we've been talking about Bill Wilson and his story. And originally Bill's story was not meant to be page one. It was actually chapter two in the first edition. There was a man by the name of Tom Uzzle who edited the book and Tom Uzzle and uh, Janet, uh, they, they edited the book. Janet did the text and Uzzle did the, uh, the content. And Uzzle moved the chapter to the front of the book. It was originally supposed to be the first, the first story in the back of the book. And what they were originally gonna do with some of the stories was put a couple of stories in front of a chapter that it applied to. And so Uzzle kind of changed all that. He did that in the, in the uh, January and February of 39. The, bo the book was printed April 10th, and this occurred January and February of 39. Um, Janet Blair and Uzzle did a very good job, obviously. But anyway, Bill's story was originally chapter two. The, the doctor's opinion was chapter one. And in the second edition, they moved the doctor's opinion to the Roman numeral section. And the reason was that Dr. Silkworth was not an alcoholic and they wanted the book to be for alcoholics by alcoholics. And as Silkworth was not an alcoholic, they moved his opinion to the Roman numeral section. But we've been talking about Bill Wilson and Bill is a very smart man, a very dedicated man, a very focused man. He comes out of World War I with a lot of high hopes. And he, he is sure that he will be at the front of, of vast enterprises, that he will manage with the utmost assurance. His attitude is good. He goes in and he, uh, he's in law school and he does pass. He does, he does, it's one of the few bars Bill does pass is the bar exam. But uh, the bottom line is, is that um, Bill Wilson will never practice law during his life, but he will pass the test. We see him and what we're going to do is we're gonna utilize the story to look at Bill's thinking and ask ourselves, do I think the way Bill thinks? Do I eat the way Bill drinks? And what we're going to do this morning 
is we're going to take a very, very detailed look at Bill as he begins his descent into madness down the roller coaster. We're going to back up one paragraph. I'm on page three of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, fourth edition. I'm on page three, and I'm going to repeat what we talked about last week, the last paragraph that we covered, because I feel that in doing so, it will give us some good momentum to go into the descent, because right now, Bill is going up. Things are good for Bill. Well, why don't I let him tell you rather than me try to tell you? Let's let him tell you. I'm on page three. This is the top of the roller coaster. For the next few years, fortune through money and applause my way, I had arrived. Now here's the kid with the inferiority complex, the anxiety disorder, depression. He comes from a divorced family. When Bill was 10 years old, his father went on a business trip and never came home. His mother went to Boston, Massachusetts. He was born in East Dorset, Vermont. His mother will go to Boston, Mass to become one of the nation's first female osteopathic physicians. He will be raised by grandma and grandpa Griffith with his sister Dorothy in East Dorset, Vermont. He is now in New York. He is living on Park Avenue. He is buying Lois a piano. He is buying Lois dresses and furs and jewelry. And he is treating her the way he has always dreamed that he would treat her. And she's loving it. He's drinking, but it's working for him so far. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. Now let's take that sentence and take a look at what it's telling us. Let's just say, for example, that you do anything, whether you're an administrative assistant, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a whatever you are, the way you do what you do becomes a standard of excellence. Could you just imagine for just a minute now People are talking and saying, I do something this way. And someone else says, oh, no, that's not the way Joe does it. Oh, no, you're wrong. That's not the way Susan does it. That's not the way Mary does it. And so your way of doing things, your way of thinking becomes the standard. It becomes the cardinal. It becomes the way to do things. People are investing money based on his opinions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. This is the greatest growth in American history is the roaring 20s. Drink, all that stuff is really going down. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. There were loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and shattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair weather friends. Now, if I'm really your friend, I stick with you. 
But when I'm a fair weather friend, I am just your friend because you're famous or you're rich or you're this or you're that. I'm out to use you for something. I'm out to use you so that you will somehow improve my life. I'm not really a friend. I care nothing for you. I'm just there to breathe in your air. And so these are the kind of people that are hanging around with Bill. Bill is doing well. He's at the top of the roller coaster, but he doesn't know it. Let's see where he goes from here. My drinking assumed more serious proportions continuing all day and almost every night. Please make note of the word almost because we're gonna refer back to that word almost real soon here. The remonstrances, what is a remonstrance? A remonstrance is a protestation. A remonstrance is a warning. A remonstrance is somebody telling you, hey, you're getting drunk way too much. You're drinking way too much. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row, not a row, but a row. What is a row? A row is a quarrel, an argument a fight, if you will, uh, terminated in a row and I became a lone wolf. Now let's take a look at what we just read and let's put this to the test. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Do I eat the way Bill eat, drinks? Now he is faced with everything he's ever wanted being over here in my left hand. The friends, the fame, the money, the fortune, the admiration of people that he's wanted from the time he was a child. In my right hand here is loneliness, but it's full of food and full of whiskey. He is caught between the two hands. He can either stop drinking or he can say, screw these people. I'm going to drink no matter what they say. And he becomes a lone wolf. And how many times did I sit alone on a Friday night and a Saturday night with tears running down my face and food all around me, empty cartons, gallons of ice cream, pizza boxes, cookie boxes, God knows what boxes, bags, and all around me, my tears were flowing like a river because I was lonely. I was emasculated. I was an object of ridicule. I broke furniture. I got stuck in cars. You've all heard me talk about this many, many times, but the reality of that situation is why would anyone in my situation still be eating gallons of a damn ice cream when faced with the reality that I was living in. And the fact of the matter is I am no different from Bill. Everything he's ever wanted was right there in front of him. And he says to these people, screw you. I don't need you. I've got John Barleycorn. And he continues to drink. Do I think the way Bill thinks? You bet I do. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? You bet I do. And it took an act of God and it took a miracle to save me from that hell. 
There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity. Now, I don't want to get into the whole argument of no real infidelity. What's real infidelity as opposed to not real infidelity? And if you want to throw rocks at Bill Wilson, he was very human. Now, a lot of the reports of his infidelities were exaggerated by a guy in the 50s named Tom Powers. And Tom Powers was good friends with Bill. They were good buddies. Tom was a New Yorker and he knew Bill. And in the 50s, they be, 40s and 50s, they became very good friends. And they had a major falling out. And Tom Powers was the one who spread a lot of the rumors that Bill had been unfaithful to Lois. Do we know for a fact that Bill had a long-term uh, liaison with Helen Wynn and he left her a percentage of the royalties to the big book? Yes, we do. Yes, we do know that. But here he's saying there was no real infidelity. I'm not quite sure how to amplify that. You know, you have these things that come up on Facebook. If you could have lunch with anybody in the world, who would it be? Well, for me, it's the guy right behind me. There's nobody living or dead. I think I'd rather have, well, maybe Jennifer Garner or Jennifer Aniston. But I would. there's nobody I'd rather have lunch with than the guy behind me. Although I think I would not ask him about these things. I would have a lot of other things to ask him about, not this. But Lois, as Lois remembers, does not jive with what Bill remembers about these various things. Let's just move on. It's not germane to our conversation here. It's not really germane to anything we're doing. Helped at times by extreme drunkenness kept me out of those scrapes. 1929, the world is about to go crazy, but no one knows it yet. Summer of 29, things are still okay with the economy and the world. Now, I want to explain something before we read this paragraph. Lois was a good little Al-Anon. Oh, she was a good little Al-Anon. And her and Ann Bingham will form a group in 1950 called Al-Anon. And Ann Bingham and Lois Wilson will change the world. But Lois Wilson believed that when Bill was drinking in the city, they would move to the country. Remember, I may not have told you, but the Burnhams, Dr. Burnham had a summer home in Manchester, Vermont. That's how Lois met Bill when she was at her summer home in Manchester, Vermont. I've been to Manchester, Vermont. Nice place. But the bottom line is when he would be drinking in the country, they'd move to the city. When he would be drinking in the city, they would move to the country. Oh, she was a good little Al-Anon. And she would convince herself that no matter what happened, a geographic would just do the right thing, would just fix everything up. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country, my wife to applaud, while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Walter Hagen was like Tiger Woods now, very big golfer. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Now this next sentence, remember I told you to take note of the word almost every night? Well, here's where we're gonna cash it in. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. Stop right there. 
Now, let's point out something that's very important to point out, because if you're not tuned in, you're going to miss it. And I don't want you to miss it. Remember, I told you last week that the disease has three characteristics, three properties. It is permanent. It is progressive. And left unchecked, it is fatal. We see now the progression of Bill's drinking. On the last page, he was drinking every day and almost every night, golf permitted drinking every day and every night. What's the, go the alcoholic golfer's favorite hole? The 19th, because that's when they can get schnockered. It was fun to roam around the exclusive course, which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. He sees what's going on. He's looking at Bill. Most of the time or all the time that Bill is coming in, he's a little bit schnockered and he's wondering how long can this go on? Now, what I want to remind you of is we are living in a world that is pretty removed from the Great Depression. The Great Depression, I'm not going to go into a whole history of the Depression. It's not germane to what we're talking about. It's not necessary. I just want to put things into perspective for you. When the United States of America catches cold, then the world will get pneumonia. And it, it was not just an American depression. It was a worldwide depression. So let's take a look at what's going to happen here, because what comes up must come down. And many of us found that out in 2008, 2009, didn't we? Didn't we find out that these inflated prices, these inflated situations, they will correct themselves. Now, just to put it in perspective for you, unemployment normally runs now about four or five percent. Now we're at about three and change here in Arizona. Some states are running four, most are three and change. During the depression, unemployment among whites was 50 to 60 percent. Unemployment in minorities was 90 to 100 percent. There was no money. There was no credit. There was no food. There was no nothing. The great dust bowl is occurring out on the plains and the wheat is blowing in the wind and the country is in deep, deep depression. Bang. Abruptly. Let's continue. I'm just, I don't want to go into the whole history of it, but I think it helps to sort of understand what we're talking about here. Abruptly in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was eight o'clock, five hours after the market closed, the ticker still clattered. I was, started, I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ32. 
It's not XYZ minus 32. A stock cannot be minus. Once it hits zero, it's zero. You can't have a minus stock. This is really Pennock and Ford. Pennock and Ford was an investment that Bill believed very strongly in. He put a lot of his friends into it. He tried to put his father-in-law into it, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. He put as many people as he could into Pennock and Ford, and it was 32, and it had been 52 that morning. I was finished, and so were many friends. He's feeling guilty now. He's feeling scared now. He's feeling less than. It isn't just that these people lost money. Everybody lost money. But what he's most afraid of in this situation is they're going to blame him. And they did. And they did. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. Notice he puts high finance in capital letters. Why? Because to many people, the stock market, the money, the board is their higher power. Let's see what happens to some of those people. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. So he's looking at these people and many of them are committing suicide. They're killing themselves. And he is looking at these people with disgust. And he's looking at these people and he thinks, what a bunch of putzes. He's not going to kill himself. He goes back to the bar. Well, why did he go to the bar? Without knowing it intellectually, he knows it internally. I never thought to myself, hey, ice cream will make me feel better. I just thought I was hungry and that I liked ice cream. I never knew intellectually what I know now, that ice cream was doing something for me, for me, that nothing else could do. It gave me what Dr. Silkworth calls the effect. Now, I want you to take note we probably won't get to it this week, but next week, I promise you, we're going to get to a, a, a situation where we're going to look back and we're going to see where he, he was disgusted by these people killing himself. And we're going to see where the progression of the disease is going to take Bill Wilson. <sighs> I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day as I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. So what is he illustrating for us here? He is illustrating for you. He is illustrating what the liquor or the food does. I was lonely. I was crying. I had never been on a date with a girl in my life. My friends, when we were early 20s, they looked fantastic. Girls were all over them. They would laugh at their stupid jokes and flip their hair and giggle. And, and I said, these guys are not that funny. What the hell's going on here? Well, I didn't understand what was going on there. And I wanted in on this, and, but ice cream would convince me because it alters me. In another chapter of the book, it says that strange world of the alcoholic where everything is exaggerated and it's, it's altered. That strange world of the compulsive overeater. And that situation is such that whiskey was doing for Bill what nothing else could do. It was altering his perception of reality. The suicide level 
of alcoholics is 72 times the normal rate. 72 times the normal rate for alcoholics. And in almost every single case, an alcoholic kills themselves, it's when they are sober. I'm gonna say that again. The alcoholic suicide rate is 72 times the normal rate. And in almost 100% of the suicides of alcoholics, they kill themselves when they are sober. Why? Because sobriety is untenable for them. And as much torture and as much pain as I went through at the hands of Twinkies, at the hands of Girl Scout cookies, at the hands of pizza, when I wasn't eating those things, I felt horrible. But I felt better. I felt anger better. I felt fear better. I felt my own inadequacies better. It's when I wasn't eating that the problem. And if you're like me and you're like Bill, then welcome home. Because if you're not a compulsive overeater and you find yourself gaining a little weight here and there, or maybe you have a problem with weight and food, then you're probably not a compulsive overeater. But if when you're not eating, when you're not drinking, that's when you're, you're addicted to it. Welcome to Overeaters Anonymous welcome home. The real problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body, because it is the mind that gets uncomfortable when we're not imbibing, and it demands that we feel better right now. So Bill Wilson is looking around, and as the whiskey is racing through his head, and as that whiskey is taking over his thoughts, the old fierce determination to win is coming back. What do they call that? Liquid courage, liquid courage. These guys, why do you think they do so well with, with a lot of things? They have that false, that faux confidence, that quasi confidence. That's why they do well. They're, they're quasi confident, but they're really not. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. This is his friend, Dick Johnson. By the following spring, we were living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me, but drinking caught up with me again and my generous friend had to let me go. This time we stayed broke. Elba is an island to where Napoleon was banished. He escapes Elba and retakes his territory throughout France and Europe. When he's banished to St. Helena, that's it for him. That's the, that's the end. That's the curtain. A couple of my friends on their second or third, one's on their third, one's on their second marriages. They went to one of those islands for their honeymoon and they loved it. They thought it was great. But anyway, they got to, they got to leave though. When you go to St. Helena now, they let you leave. Okay. They didn't let Napoleon leave. Okay. Now, before we read the next paragraph, I want to give you a little background why this is so impactful. Lois was a Burnham, and Dr. Burnham was a gynecologist. He was a surgeon, and he was a genetics doctor. He was a surgeon, a gynecologist, and a genetics doctor. And Dr. Burnham was not one of these guys that would 
listen when people tried to sell him something. He, he didn't like it. He didn't want to be sold anything. And he just felt that his new son-in-law, Bill Wilson, number one, was not good enough for his daughter. Lois was actually a couple of years older than Bill, which at that time was not all that common for the wife to be older than the husband. The Burnhams thought at a very deep level that Lois could have done a lot better. Lois came from New York and Bill was a country boy and this is not who they thought Lois should be with. But okay, if she's happy, I'm happy. Now, Lois has a couple of what's called ectopic pregnancies. An ectopic pregnancy, the first one was not all that dangerous. They caught it. She was okay. They told her you could still get pregnant, blah, blah, blah. She has a second ectopic pregnancy. She is home by herself. Bill Wilson is out getting drunk. He is out at a bar. There were no cell phones at that time. There were no cell phones. And she doesn't know where the hell he is. She's calling and calling anybody and everybody that might know where he is. And nobody can come up with an answer. Finally, she calls her father and says, Dad, I need you to come over right now. I can't stop bleeding. I'm bleeding like like crazy. And I need you to come over right now. This was in the days when doctors made house calls. If you're anything like my age, you remember the MD license plate. It said state of Illinois, land of Lincoln. And then it would say MD. And then there'd be a number after it. And in the middle of the license plate was that little emblem that showed that they were medical doctors. If you're my age or older, you'll remember this. Dr. Burnham comes over there and he takes his daughter to the hospital. He leaves a note on the kitchen table at 6 p.m. Bill, Lois is in trouble. I'm taking her to the hospital. Come immediately when you see this note. This is at 6 p.m. The next day, 10 a.m., in comes Bill Wilson. Dr. Burnham is beside himself. He is beside himself. Where was my son-in-law as my daughter had to have an emergency hysterectomy and all Lois has wanted to do from the time she was a child was have kids and have a family. She has had an emergency hysterectomy. She almost hemorrhaged out. She came close to dying. 10 o'clock the next morning, this guy comes to the hospital. He stinks. He has peed his pants several times. He has vomited all over his shirt, his jacket, and his tie. He smells to high hell. He's not shaved. He's not clean. He hasn't brushed his teeth. He's a mess. And Dr. Burnham never forgave Bill Wilson. Never. Bill goes in. He apologizes to Lois. Lois is a good little Al-Anon. Everything's okay. She comes home from the hospital. And what's he been doing almost every night while she was in the hospital? 
going out and getting drunk. She comes home. They have to move into 182 Clinton Street. So now Bill Wilson is moving in with the Burnhams. Thank God they had what's called a mother-in-law apartment in their property. A mother-in-law apartment is what it what you'd think it is. It's a little apartment within the greater the greater house, the greater apartment. If you've never been to 182 Clinton Street, I gave you assignments last week. Get your butt over there, get your tuchus to 182 Clinton Street and stand on the stoop fresh skinned and glowing and have somebody take your picture. I can only imagine these poor people live there and they're thinking, oh, here comes another one. Here comes another one coming up the stairs. Uh, so I can just imagine the people, but if you just think for a minute while you're on those stairs at 182 Clinton Street, Think of the people that have come up those stairs, Fitz Mayo, Dr. Bob, Dr. Silkworth, Jimmy Burwell, Hank Parkhurst, Bill Wilson, Lois Wilson. Think of the cast of characters that have come up and down that street. There was a Tuesday night meeting at that house for years. And these guys, Dick Stanley and all these various other guys that would come in from Akron, close your eyes and just feel them as you stand on those stairs or you sit at the stoop and just close your eyes and feel them. And it gives you a sense of God. It gives you a sense of how lucky we are to be living when these people made such sacrifices so we could have what we have. Think about that for a minute. And it'll, if you're, unless you're dead, it'll give you a feeling of awe and wonder beyond imagination. Okay, let's get back to the book. My wife, uh, we went to live with my wife's parents. He was happy about that, let me tell you. I found a job, then lost it as the result of a brawl with a taxi driver. He picks up a taxi driver coming out of a bar. <clears throat> Bill's coming out of the bar, not the taxi driver, in Manhattan. Bill's drinking in Manhattan. And he, com oh, yeah. he comes to this taxi and the guy says, where to? And he goes, Brooklyn, 182 Clinton Street. And Bill has no money. He has no money to pay the guy. He drank all his money. You know, he's buying drinks for people that he barely knows. And he has no money. And the guy wants to beat the crap out of him. So this gets back to the future, to the prospective employer. No job. Once again, Bill's life is altered by his addiction. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. How many opportunities did I lose? because of my eating, my weight, my appearance, my situation. How many opportunities did I lose? They are too numerous to count. Mercifully, no one could guess I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. Lois was an interior decorator. She worked for $19 a week plus commission. Her usual income was anywhere between 23 and 26, $27 a week. 
They had been living on Park Avenue. Now they're lucky just to be existing in her parents' home. They're making $25 a week. He isn't working at all. He's home drinking grapefruit juice and whiskey, grapefruit juice and gin. I mean, it's just a pathetic situation. He's unshaven. He's unclean. He doesn't get dressed. He doesn't go anywhere except to drink or buy liquor. This was their life. Can I relate? You bet I can. You bet that I can. I be top of page five. I became an unwelcome hanger on at brokerage places. Liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. I could do a weekend retreat just on that sentence alone. I could build a whole retreat. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. There'd be more to talk about than I could cover in, in the weekend. And you look at that and do I relate? Yes. The reason that I relate is there wasn't enough food to get me high. There wasn't enough food that I could catch that buzz. And the more I ate, the, more, the worse it got. The more food it took, it was terrible. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day. Can you imagine he's drinking two bottles of gin? What's bathtub gin? You have to remember this was prohibition time. And there was no store-bought liquor. There was the bootlegger and the stuff you could make yourself. So bathtub gin is called that because they'd make it in the bathtub. Two bottles of gin a day. I'd be in the emergency room if I ate, drank two bottles of gin a day. <laughs> and often three got to be routine. What am I going to point out to you here? You guessed it. You're right. You're smart. I'm pointing out to you the progressive nature of the disease. The disease is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Two, three bottles of gin a day, not glasses, bottles. And I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly. And I began to waken very early in the morning shaking violently. Why is he shaking violently? He has delirium tremens. Delirium tremens is when these guys look like an Airedale trying to crap out a peach pit. They're shaking and shaking and shaking and shaking. They can't stop. When I lived in Eugene, Oregon, I went to AA. There is no OA there. There's no such thing. I saw these guys coming into the meetings with delirium tremens. You talk about a drinking problem. They couldn't take a cup of coffee and put it to their mouth to drink like this because their hand was shaking. And I saw alcoholics taking the, the cup of coffee in, in the little styrofoam cup and holding it to the guy's mouth so he could take a drink of coffee. And that's where this disease takes you. Can I relate to the way Bill thinks? Yes. Can I, do I eat the way he drinks? Yes, because it's worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required. Make note of that word required if I were to eat any breakfast. So in the morning, he is taking a tumbler of gin and six bottles of beer before breakfast. 
You can see the progression of his disease. You can see where it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. It is, he is now in a horrifically horrible condition. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. What is he doing there? He's going on what we would call a diet. He sees that his drinking is out of control and he's trying to control his drinking while he's drinking. And I know every one of you, I would bet my bottom dollar, there's not one person, there's 153, so there's 152 here besides me. Out of 152 people here right now, every one of you have gone on a diet or some self-imposed situation. And that's what he's doing. Let's see where he, and Lois, good little Alanon, I'm not going to drink anymore, Lo, and he doesn't drink for two hours. And she feels that he's got this thing licked and he's telling her exactly what he, she wants to hear. And I realize what I'm doing to myself and what I'm doing to you. And I love you and I don't want to hurt you. These are the words she's wanted to hear. So the good little Alanon, yeah, she, yeah, we're right in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she doesn't understand the disease and he doesn't understand the disease. Let's see where it takes him. Gradually, things got worse. Now, let's stop right there for just a minute. Gradually, things got worse. Wait a minute. I thought he stopped drinking. Oh, I remember now. Abstinence does not treat this disease. I'm going to say that two more times. Abstinence does not treat this disease. Abstinence does not treat this disease. Man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. Don't look in the book. It's not in front of you. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He made up his mind that until he would be successful in business, he would not touch another drop. For 25 years, he remained bone dry. 25 years, he remained bone dry. He decided that after he had been successful in business, he could drink. So out came his carpet slippers in a bottle and he was dead within four years. Sobriety does not treat alcoholism. Abstinence does not treat compulsive overeating. It is an integral component of any recovery program. But abstinence alone will not treat this disease. Only you have a disease which only a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening. What's the difference to save myself time later? The difference is a spiritual experience is bam, sudden right now. I see God. Wow. Here he is. Hey, welcome. Welcome to my room, God. And a spiritual awakening is very slow in developing. I've had a spiritual awakening. I have never had a spiritual experience. I don't really know anybody that claims to have had a spiritual experience. I do not know. Man, my allergies are bad. My eyes, I'm not crying. My eyes are tearing because of the allergies. Man, it's just, ah, just that time of year. Wow. Hey, I'm not crying. But the bottom line is, is that you have a situation 
where only a spiritual awakening will treat this disease. And so if we do not treat it with a spiritual awakening, it will continue to do its dirty work. Only a spiritual awakening. Gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's springtime in the desert. Oh, gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. So things around Bill are not great. Things around him are shaky. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits, and I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. I'll tell you the story within the story. It takes place in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And when I went out, my friend Kim G invited me out to New Jersey, South Jersey, the Philly side, not the New York side. I went out there and we did one in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. I'm pretty sure Mount Laurel, New Jersey was where we had the, uh, the retreat. And um, we ate dinner on Saturday night in Cherry Hill so I could breathe in Bill's air. I was very excited. I was very tired, but I was also very excited. Anyway, enough about me. So we're, Bill Wilson is forming this group that came to him and said, hey, what do you think we ought to buy? Stocks are at a really low point. And they met in this hotel room in Cherry Hill. And this guy brings a bottle of whiskey and he starts passing it around. Bill doesn't take a drink. The next time the bottle, the jug comes around, remember it was a jug, it wasn't a bottle. You couldn't get store-bought stuff. He says, hey, Wilson, this is Jersey Lightning. I made this myself. Bill figures, hey, I haven't had Jersey Lightning. I'll take one sip just to be polite to this guy. Bill doesn't come out of that hotel room for three days. He is so dead drunk. He can't see. He can't walk. He can't function. And the chance vanished. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. Do I relate to the permanent, progressive, fatal nature of this disease? Yes. He's got to go home and once again tell Lois that he screwed up and she's got to continue working in the department store and there'll be no money, no employment, no nothing. Once again, he has to go home with his tail between his legs, and I am living his life. I'm absolutely parallel to everything he's describing. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever, back on his diet. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises. But my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Lois is a good little Al-Anon. God knew who to pick to start Al-Anon, her and Ann Bingham. And whatever Bill said, she was right there in lockstep until she saw that he was full of baloney. And so he tells her he's not going to drink anymore, and she buys it. But not until, but when he starts drinking, then of course she doesn't. And he writes in the family Bible 
He writes in the family Bible in 1932 as it comes to a close and 1933 is there. Lo, my dear Lo, I will not drink anymore. Whiskey has robbed us of some of the best years of our lives. And I promise Lois before you and God that I will not touch another drop while we know how long that lasted. Shortly afterward, I came home, what? Drunk. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. Wait a minute, what happened to his diet? What happened to his promise? What happened to what he wrote in the Bible? What happened to what he swore to God? Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. I didn't know. I was confused. Why was I doing this? Doctors, rabbis, parents, adults, friends, everybody was asking me, Harlan, why are you doing what you're doing? And I didn't have an answer. I didn't know why. If you want to ask me a question, I just don't know the answer to it's why. Why would I treat myself like a garbage can? Why would I make myself an object of ridicule? Why would I permanently distend my body? I wouldn't treat you that way. I love you, but I would treat me that way. Can I relate to the way Bill thinks? You bet I can. And I'm as confused as Bill Wilson when I'm in the ice cream. This disease is cunning baffling and powerful. It's confusing. This disease makes no sense. Why do people eat ice cream when all they want to be is thin? It's almost as if we were wrong way peach fuzz and we kept going north to try to go south. And when we would set out to go west, we would point the car east. And people would say, why are you going east when you want to go west? And we would say, I don't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? He begins to question his own sanity, as did I. And I was a defeated person. I wanted to die much more than I wanted to live. I saw no life in the food. I saw no life without the food. I saw no purpose to life without the food because I didn't know that you could be free of the food and smile and be happy and be productive because that had never been my experience. I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seen near being just that. Do I relate to Bill? Yes, I do. Right down the line. Renewing my resolve, going back on my diet. I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksuredness. I could laugh at the gin mills. I've lost 150 pounds as a teenager. I lost a lot of weight. I could diet with the best of them. And I was young and the weight would fall off me. I've told the story here, how I'm, when I was nine years old, I was put on diet pills. I was put on heavy duty amphetamines. I've told the story here that when I was 10 years old, I was put on heavy duty amphetamines. This is by doctors. I'm not talking about street drugs here. I'm talking from doctors and the weight would fall off me because I had no appetite. 
And what would happen immediately upon me not taking those pills? I would eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin. And, and, and I feared for my life. I didn't know what, what to do. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. What caused Bill to take that first drink? First of all, he's going into a cafe to make a telephone call. They don't have a telephone at the barbershop. They don't have a telephone at the dime store. They don't have a telephone at the men's clothing store. He has to go and make a call at the cafe so he can tell Lois, I was just in there making a call and somebody bought me a, a beer, bought me a drink. Well, what caused Bill to take the first drink? The mental twist. What caused Bill to beat on the bar, wondering how it happened and telling himself he might as well get good and drunk then, and I did? It's the physical allergy. Do I relate to Bill's mental twist? Yes. Do I relate to his physical allergy? Yes. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. And I had that sense of impending calamity. When I was a junior in high school, I was a junior in high school and it was, this was May of 1971 or 72. No, I became, I graduated. This was May of 71. I'm at Mather High School in Chicago and I broke my ankle and my mother took me to the doctor and I can see him now. Now I had been screamed at and I had been lectured and I had been pushed down and punched and everything you could imagine for being fat. Fatty, fatty, two by four, can't get through the kitchen door. And no matter what the argument, you lose when you're fat. If a thin kid says two and two is nine, and a fat kid says two and two is four, the thin kid can always say to the fat kid, but yeah, you're fat, and he wins or she wins. I broke my ankle. And this was in the days when the doctor used to put the cast on your ankle. Now they don't do that. Now a nurse does or a nurse's assistant does. But anyway, he came in there. I can see him now. I can see him now. His name was Dr. Bernstein. He's been dead for years. Edgewater Hospital, Chicago, Illinois. If you've ever seen the movie Backdraft, that emergency room, that's Edgewater Hospital. It's not a hospital anymore, though. It's condos. But anyway, I'm at Edgewater Hospital in the emergency room, and Dr. Bernstein had these little granny glasses that were very in, in vogue in the late 60s, early 70s. And he was an old man, but he's wearing these granny glasses. I don't know, maybe his kids made him wear it. And he looked at my mother and he said, you know, Virginia, and he was really pissed off. He says, you know, Virginia, he is 300 pounds and he is 17 years old. When is this going to stop? When is it going to stop, Virginia? My mother's name was obviously Virginia. It would be funnier if her name was Francis or something or Mary or something like that. But he says, Virginia, when is this going to stop? And my mother got scared and she started crying. Guess what me and my mother did on the way home from Edgewater Hospital with my new cast? We went to, on Devon Avenue, we went to Bressler's 33 Flavors and ate ice cream. Pretend, not pretending, well, pretending, vowing that the next day we were going to go on our diets. But he scared me. 
he scared the crap out of me. And my brain raced uncontrollably many times with a sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck. He's paranoid now. The liquor, the alcoholism is giving him night terrors and he's paranoid now. I had night terrors. I had paranoia from the food. I had all those things for it was scarcely daylight. An all night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. Remember when he was drinking six glasses of ale? Now he's drinking 12 glasses of ale. What does this call us to? The progressive nature of the disease. He's eating more, he's drink, excuse me, he's drinking more and more and more and more. And he has this sense. Well, the morning paper, a morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? Remember I told you to make note of when he's looking down his nose at the people that are suicidal? Now he's become one of them. Let's go back to page one here for just a minute here. Page one, page one at the very bottom of the page, 22, last paragraph on page one. 22 and a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation. My talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. Now let's go back to page six. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. That's on top of the six bottles of ale that he's just finished. The progressive nature of this disease means that no matter how smart you are, no matter how beautiful you are, no matter who you love or who loves you, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, tall or short, gay or straight, Jew or Catholic or Protestant or Buddhist or Muslim or whatever it is you are, this disease will rot into your life and strip you of any dignity that God entitled you to. It will strip you down and it will make you a laughing stock and you will not want to live. You will want to give up the most precious commodity that the world has ever seen, life. You will not want to continue. You will want to die. You will pray for the right to die. You will pray for the guts to kill yourself, as I did many times. We were given a life. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. And we, in this disease, would piss it away. There are people who love you. There are people who need you. You love others and God loves everybody. And yet... We will opt for the food. We will 
pray for the end, and we will march into hell with an ice cream container in one hand and a spoon in the other, not caring at all. We will pursue this effect to the gates of insanity or death. We will pursue this to the gates of insanity or death. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? Yes. Yes. I'm going to tell one short story after I say this. I know we're, we're pushing time here, but I want to tell you this. I, do I relate to the permanent progressive fatal nature of this disease? You bet I do. I've told you this before, and I'm shamelessly pushing it again. One of my favorite weekends every year is the middle weekend of January. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday is also, in the olden days, the OA birthday in Los Angeles. Well-run convention. Wow, what a great convention. And the person and the people, not the person, the, well, the person too, but the people that run it, they make sure that it is just run like a top, that it spins like a top. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see. And it's a beautiful thing to be at. And every time I go to this, I get in a couple of days early. I usually get in Wednesday night. So we can play Thursday and then up to seven o'clock on Friday, although it's different now. They start earlier on Friday. They used to start everything seven o'clock on Friday and uh, we would go. But anyway, there's one particular group that goes to the beach in Los Angeles. I'm not crying. I'm just allergies. Um, they, um, they go to the beach in Los Angeles and they go out there and they come back and they say, what a miracle, what a miracle. Yeah, that is a miracle. But I looked it up in the dictionary and it says a miracle is some occurrence to which there is no scientific or logical explanation. You know what the most unbelievable miracle at the OA birthday is? The most unbelievable miracle are the 1,200 people there that are compulsive overeaters and a huge amount of them are not eating compulsively and they are happy in their release. They're happy to be in recovery. That's the miracle. So if you're sitting here wondering, can these things happen to me? We just described them happening to Bill. If they haven't happened for you, they may yet. But can recovery happen? Yes. I want you to come back next week. And we're going to talk about Bill Wilson some more. And next week, we're going to see what happened to Bill and how a miraculous recovery will be affected and how the world will change forever. Come back next week. Okay. Um, before I turn